Well, good afternoon, everybody. I want to welcome you to our Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. My name is Tom Gilligan, and I'm the director of the Hoover Institution. The Hoover Institution at Stanford University is one of the nation's preeminent research centers dedicated to generating policy ideas that promote economic prosperity, national security, and democratic governance. Throughout our 100 years history, our work has directly led to policies that have produced greater freedom, democracy, and opportunity in the United States and around the world. The worldwide pandemic has caused us, like everyone else, to change the way we share our research. We will be bringing you these regular online briefings from Hoover Scholars over the next few weeks. I want to remind everybody that we're going to be taking audience questions today. Please use your uh, computer and internet device to submit questions online. Today's briefing is from Shepherd Family Distinguished Visiting Fellow Kevin Warsh. Former member of the Federal Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, Kevin is an expert on Fed policy. He's also served as a special assistant to the President for Economic Policy. Kevin currently advises several private and public companies and is a member of the Group of 30. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Tom, thank, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to do it. I'm, I'm new at the Zoom experience, so go slowly with me. I think all of us are new at what we're doing these days, and, and you, you'll be forgiven for that, I'm sure. Hey, let's start with just a general question. Give us your big picture overview of what's going on in the economy, what's likely to happen in the near term, and what this policy of government shutdown of the column of, of the economy, what kind of challenges it presents to us? So I'd say first off, Tom, this is the biggest global economic shock that we've seen probably since World War II. So the, the shock that has hit us looks to have a deeper, more far-ranging consequence than even the shock that many of us, like me, who served during the 2008-9 period have. Um, I'd say the, the, to try to measure this shock versus the 2008 and 9, just for perspective, I think the worst quarterly output numbers we had back then in the fourth quarter of 2008, after revisions, output went down something like 8.4%. And uh, the worst monthly payroll number, to my recollection, was something to the tune of eight or 900,000 job losses. Uh, based on my, my sense of where the economy is now, both those numbers are likely to be eclipsed. So that should just give us a sense of the, of the, of the size of this shock. And we can talk in more detail over the policy response, which might have an, a, a considerable impact over it's, it's, uh, it's ultimate duration. Got it. So we've seen some estimates by banks and others, like I think Goldman Sachs put out an estimate that the GDP would contract by 24%. Uh, we've seen some numbers about unemployment. Uh, our, our annual GDP is like 21 trillion. What's the, what's the dollar value, the cost of people in terms of unemployment that you see going forward that will be caused by this? Yeah, so I'd say we're all, we're all making estimates over what the second quarter might be but I think it's a reasonably confident judgment that you're gonna have a fallen output in double digits. And frankly, in terms of whether the fallen output is 15 or 25%, that doesn't have a huge consequence for policymakers. That's a big and deep shock. It does have a huge consequence for the labor markets. And I think that the labor markets are likely to suffer more greatly than in 2008. And just to give you some sense of this, our government, Tom, has uh, 
put the economy in recessions, not infrequently in the post-war era, but our governments have done that by accident. In this circumstance, in the U.S. and around the world, our governments are choosing to put the economy into recession. That is the public health policy choice, and I wouldn't be, I'd be the last one who, to disagree with that. So it's different both in the nature of the shock and its global origin. It's different in the, the uncertainties around the shock. And it's also different because the government has decided to shut the economy down so that on the other end of things, that there'll be more people that are attached to the economy, we'd be healthier and stronger. So all of that, I think, very much differentiates what we're, what we're enduring right now versus almost all post-war shocks uh, uh, in our memory. So as a former, former board governor, you're an expert of what the Fed does and can do. Tell us to confront this. So I, I, caught, I caught most of that. I think, Tom, what I, what, what I heard was, what, what should the Fed be doing? Is that, is that yeah, kind of what is it doing more than anything else, and then maybe what it should be doing further down the road. Right. So, you know, having been there in the, in the last war, um, I know how brutal these days and weeks have been. Um, I feel for the, for the people at the Treasury um, and at the Fed in particular, because I know how hard this is. And to be honest, they've been struck with a shock that might be even harder to deal with than the one that Chairman Bernanke and his team were with. So I'm going to be the last person to be critical of the Fed at this time and be the first person to say that they've made judgments in with a ton of uncertainty of information, uncertainty about what the other political actors in the U.S. and around the world are going to do. And I think in a matter of a few weeks, they put themselves on war footing, and that's an essential move. In terms of what they've actually done, I think the way I, the way I view it from the cheap seats, not, not being there, is they first took something like the 2008 playbook that the institution understood. The institution has the muscle memory of 08 and 09, and there's been enough scholarship written about it pro and con. Then when they first got hit with a shock and realized how grave it was, they took out the 2008 playbook. And I think as they've started to recognize the differences between the 2020 war and the 2008 war, it seems, especially over the last several days, that they are innovating on their own and innovating to take on the, the very real fight that we have in front of us. Yeah. Could you be a little bit more specific about some of these innovations over the past two or three days? What are they doing in credit markets, for example, muni markets or commercial paper markets, corporate bond markets? Uh, tell us what, what factually is going on there. Yeah, so I think they, 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 they've come to the judgment and we've seen it manifested in policies over the last several days that at core they see that this is, they've come to see this as a liquidity shock. And I'm comforted that they've come to realize that if they don't deal with the liquidity shock, that there'll be a solvency question for businesses large and small, banks large and small. So moving to that really fits well within what the Federal Reserve's historical role is, which is to provide liquidity, especially in times of stress. Right. I think if I look at the facilities that they've announced over the last few days, I think that they are seeking to make them as consistent as they can with uh, Walter Badgett, the Scottish economist, and most of the great theories of, of monetary policy. 
provide ample liquidity to all solvent comers against good collateral at a rate that is higher than is customary. And so I view them, um, especially over the last few days, recognizing that this is a liquidity problem, recognizing that it's global in nature, and instead of simply dealing with the institutions that were at the core of the crisis in 2008, it appears to me as though that our, our entire government realizes that this is a Main Street crisis first and foremost, that could then find itself on Wall Street, and it's a liquidity crisis first and foremost, that if we don't deal with it, we'll turn into a solvency crisis. So just to highlight one element, uh, Tom, you know, at Hoover, we spend most of our time in the world of ideas, not in the world of politics. Yeah. And about a week, week and a half ago, it struck me that uh, it's worth opining from the bleachers, as it were. And I wrote about a liquidity facility that could be targeted at Main Street. And it seemed to have gotten, not gotten much traction among the political class until recent days. And it appears as though this idea of providing Main Street liquidity uh, to businesses that might not be mom and pops, but they're certainly not the largest businesses that could access the commercial paper market or be backed by the big primary dealers and Wall Street firms. Hitting that core part of the economy was essential. And at least from what I read from the Federal Reserve in a summary note that they put out a couple of days ago, they're working with Treasury on this Main Street facility. I think mm -hmm. it's essential and they're counting on Congress to provide the funding through the Treasury Department, through the Exchange Stabilization Fund, so that any losses that might come about um, from this are paid for. Maybe just to give one simple stylized example, Tom, and then, then happy to follow up with the next question. On January 1st, 2020, before the pandemic really hit the U.S., that traditional Main Street business with 500 employees or something, Thing would go to their local bank, a regional bank, and they'd apply for a loan just to run their uh, to just to run their working capital to fund some expansion. If that same business showed up at that bank these days, what that bank might say is, "Listen, your revenues disappeared. Your collateral looks not as good as it was. I wish I could help you. You've been a longtime customer." For some group of those borrowers, the bank will already be providing credit, but for some, they won't. Mm -hmm. And the idea of this Main Street facility would be that the traditional banking system would deal with their traditional borrowers. Those banks would continue to be regulated by the Federal Reserve and the other national bank regulators who oversee them. And if they would have given that customer a loan on January 1st, they give that customer a loan today. And that loan can be in some sense renewable uh, until the period that this pandemic is behind us. And the important innovation is that if there are losses from some subset of those loans, mm -hmm. either because the crisis goes on longer or the business really can't adapt, then those losses would be paid for by the fiscal authorities, by the Congress. Right. The idea is to really leverage the best of the Federal Reserve System, the best of the banking system, but importantly for the Fed not to wander outside of its remit and to be spending fiscal money without the blessing and support of the Treasury and the U.S. Congress. Uh, Kevin, I want to uh, talk more about Congress in a minute. I want to stick with the Fed, 
before I ask you a, a, another question, I want to just remind everybody that you're here for the Hoover uh, virtual policy briefing with Kevin Warsh. We started a bit earlier today, so earlier than scheduled today, so some of you have come in. Welcome. I want to remind you also that we're taking questions. Please submit those on your electronic device and we'll read those shortly. Kevin, I want to stick with, with the Fed for just a little bit longer and I want to do so. We have a couple questions. One is from our colleague Josh Rao, uh, and he wants to know what are the limits right now on the scope and scale of Fed operations? How much less coverage do they have uh, from uh, the, uh, how much loss coverage do they have from the Treasury? And how much do they have uh, uh, for, for every billion dollars of their programs, how much is provided in fiscal authority? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I would say the Fed, my sense is if I were to put myself in the room where they are right now, is the first pressure they have, the first limited resource is their own ability to tackle these problems which are manifesting themselves quickly. Mm -hmm. So it's an incredibly proud organization. It's got an incredible amount of talent there, some of whom endured the last crisis, so a lot of institutional memory. But the biggest decisions they have to make every day is where are we putting our intellectual energy? Where are we developing facilities? And what I'm encouraged by is I think they have, especially in recent days, migrated towards this massive liquidity provisioning to all comers. And there seems to be some sense also that they are focused on the source of the problem, which is who's going to be paying fares to be on the airlines? Who's gonna be keeping these, these uh, industries afloat? Who's going to be going to the store and buying the next widget? And so they've had a very main street orientation in recent days, at least my reading of the programs from afar. But the second constraint is the one that our colleague Josh asks about, which is if they can um, run the plumbing and fix the plumbing of the system broadly, they still are limited by how much loss protection they're given by the Treasury and the Congress. These are ballpark numbers that I think are largely, largely accurate. Only the Fed and the Treasury would know precisely. But it looked to me as though the Treasury had something like 93 billion uh, dollars in the exchange stabilization fund of which they had some flexibility how to deploy that. It appears to me right now, uh, prior to Congress passing this new legislation and the president signing it, which might be days away, that the treasury used up about half of it. It looks to me from afar, they probably used up about all the dollar denominated assets they have. That doesn't mean that they couldn't use up some of the other currencies they have and turn them into dollars, but looks to me as though the ESF is largely exhausted and the timing as a result of Congress to reauthorize Treasury and the Exchange Stabilization Fund to provide cover for future expected losses in Fed programs. The timing's essential and the sooner Congress does that, the sooner that the Fed can make many of these programs, especially those that are broadly available to, uh, to solvent borrowers of all sorts, the sooner that that can come to the, to the help of the economy. Because if we let too much time go, Tom, a liquidity crisis becomes a solvency crisis. So this isn't uh, something where we can have, uh, where we can take our own sweet time. Yeah, so the Fed's doing a lot. It's gonna do more probably. So a Drivet ask a question that's natural. What are some of the inflation-related concerns of open-ended quantitative easing, and what steps might the Fed take to counter any potential negative effects? Yeah, well, I think if this if this shock, this crisis has done anything, I hope what it does is 
get rid of this uh, caricature of hawks and doves at the Federal Reserve. Because the truth is, um, many of the first principles about what the Fed should be doing, how it should be conducting policy in normal times and in war times, is all worthy of, 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 of a real examination. I think that was partly accomplished after the last crisis, but could be done now. Overall, if you step back, it strikes me that the supply shock, which can turn into a demand shock, largely has a disinflationary impulse. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean, of course, that we won't see prices for certain products, even in certain subsectors where prices are moving higher. But given the global recession of this sort, there's a massive global disinflationary force. Now, my judgment, as, as you and our colleagues at Hoover know for most of the past decade, is that the Fed's uh, preferred measures of inflation had all been running consistent with price stability. Mm -hmm. And I've never been one who wanted to somehow use Fed policy to move uh, core inflation from 1.7 to 1.9%. I think that introduces false precision. Yeah. The conduct of monetary policy should be more focused, it strikes me, on the left side of the decimal point and the right side <laughs> of the But this is a left side of the decimal point event. I am confident that the Fed will ensure price stability through this cycle. Um, there are real questions that can be raised in the post-crisis era. Once we get out of this, in whatever time period you say, then how quickly should the extraordinary policies be brought back? How quickly we should normalize? I'm not making news to today to suggest over much of the post-crisis period after 2009, I think there were real opportunities for normalization, which could have positioned us perhaps in a better place going into this crisis, but the Fed has to go to war with the army it, it's got, not the army it wants, and so we are where we are. Short answer, uh, immediate disinflationary impact, but the broad goal of policy today by the Fed shouldn't be in my judgment, nor do I expect it is, how do we get inflation back to 2.0%? Mm -hmm. The broad view of policy today should be, we're in a shock, how do we bring liquidity to the market in a way that is ample so that, I'll put this, Tom, in, in, in language that, that might be more most agreeable or understandable to the market practitioners that are listening. The way I think about the shock is it put the economy in a recession in the U.S. and everywhere around the world. That was the government's choice. The purpose of monetary policy today is to buy time. My judgment is monetary policy can bring demand forward and bring demand back, buy time or sell time. What a massive liquidity infusion would do, like the one we talked about a moment ago, is give businesses and households a moment to take a deep breath. Say they now have the liquidity to continue to operate to one degree or another, their household to operate their business. And by providing liquidity that can last several months or longer, when this is over, then monetary policy in a more traditional way can stand in. So we should just be trying, central bankers should just be trying to buy time at this moment, try to slow things down as the world is getting faster and faster and give Main Street and households a chance to say, in three months, I'll know better how my business will be. I'll know better how my job will be. And that's the essential element. And in some sense, it's option pricing theory. But in another sense, it's just to provide overwhelming liquidity 
to slow things down as the world is moving quicker and quicker. Yeah. Kevin, we're still getting a lot of questions about what the Fed is or could be doing. I want to combine a question from Ryan and David. Uh, Ryan asked, the mortgage market continues to be under duress. Would you expect the unprecedented FOMC actions from Monday of this week to protect the TBA market? David asked a similar question. Can the Fed help the cities and towns that have been hit by the sell-off of muni bonds? And can you say what the Fed's doing to kind of prop up or lift up the municipal or, or uh, public sector debt markets? I can. And good central bankers, even has-beens like me, we don't use language like prop up. That's okay, got it. Got it. <laughs> what we're trying to do, what they're trying to do is bring liquidity into these markets so that buyers and sellers can meet at a, at a common market equilibrium price. Now, I don't want to be disingenuous. When the Fed shows up with a big bazooka to the treasury market or the agency market, the idea is to crowd buyers in. It also has the effect of tending to move prices up in periods of crisis, so our hands aren't totally clean. But they're trying to ensure market functioning. And I think over the course of the last few weeks, what they saw, no doubt, in certain markets was a lack of market functioning. So they're bringing their bazooka, their facilities, and their credibility to those markets to try to make those markets work. I think what they've come to understand over the course of the last several days in implementation is they can't just treat the symptoms. They've got to go to the underlying causes, which I think are these, this Main Street slowdown, which is being demanded by our president and our governors and local municipal leaders. So when they come to the agency market, what they're trying to do is say that agencies, agency securities are substantially similar in this day and age to treasuries. And so if you are backed by the US government, rather than letting these markets be segmented and let there be, I would say, a lack of market functioning, by the Fed providing liquidity to these markets, what we're trying to do is create a single risk-free market. And the risk, the most important risk-free asset anywhere in the world is the US Treasury market. Mm -hmm. And so when there is malfunctioning in 10-year Treasury securities, the world has a problem. The US just doesn't have a problem. So they developed facilities to go into the Treasury market, building on the architecture that we created under Chairman Bernanke's leadership more than a decade ago. And as they've seen other markets breaking down, they're making hard decisions over, is that a market where they need to solve it? If they need to solve it, do they have enough backing from Congress and Treasury so if they lose money, that the Fed hasn't wandered outside of its remit? Or alternatively, will that market take care of itself once the real economy, once they provide liquidity to Main Street? So these are the challenges and their intellectual challenges of diagnosis and their functional challenges in terms of where to bring the bazooka. Maybe I'll just make one final comment, Tom, based on those questions. I think that, that the Fed has found itself working hard and I think successfully over the last few weeks in a storm that, that no one saw coming. My hope, my expectation even, is over the next several days, um, that they take themselves out of the bunkers in which they've necessarily found themselves and they reveal the economic war plan to the country, not just to households, to, but to businesses, not just to businesses, but to banks, to financial markets. I think the unique thing about this war, Tom, is that the enemy can't read. 
And that's a wonderful virtue. The enemy is this, is this virus, this pandemic that came out of nowhere. Normally we have to keep in times of war, war plans to ourselves because we don't want the enemy to know them. But I would encourage all of our policy leaders to be clear and public about what the war plan is. Mm-hmm. They no doubt have come up with a diagnosis of what ails the US. They've no doubt now come up with, I think, an architecture of some very powerful products. But some of central banking policy, maybe more than we wish to admit, isn't just about the plumbing. It's not just about designing the perfect facility, though to those of us in, in, in this business, that's, that's enough intellectual uh, excitement there. We've got to share what that is, share the ways and means and ends of policy in a public way. And through that, through that discussion, you can have huge signaling effects to markets that even if you have a program that's well-designed, if it's not ready to hit the ground because it's not operational yet, you can still crowd people into markets. You can crowd private investors back in because you know the Fed is coming and you understand where the Fed and the Treasury and the Congress are going. So my hope is this week is a week of explanation and um, no doubt they're feeling pressures to design new facilities But what they've rolled out is the most significant increase in Fed facilities, certainly since the crisis. And the challenge they're taking on could be that much more complex. So I think that's the challenge of the next few days. And I'm encouraged and hopeful we'll hear from them about it. Yeah, you know, I want to switch over to the discussion of the bills in Congress, Kevin, but I'm getting too many good questions about Fed behavior. So let me stay here for a second. Uh, your last comment sparked some questions about how far the Fed is willing to go. Will they buy non-traditional securities, equities, and uh, hold those kinds of securities for a while? And Claude asked a question about whether or not the Fed is coordinating with their counterparts around the world during this time of crisis. Sure. So let me try to take each of those questions um, in turn. First, the Fed is limited by the Federal Reserve Act in terms of the securities that it can buy. I happen to be one, at least from the bleachers, who's quite comfortable with the direction and limits of what Congress has historically put on the Fed. For example, that they could not buy U.S. stocks. Um, there are others who are, who are my former colleagues who think the Fed needs additional authority to buy securities that would be purchased by the Bank of Japan, where the Bank of Japan has the authority, the will, and has executed on buying a significant share of Japanese equities. The European Central Bank also has far fewer limits on the kinds of securities that they can buy. I'm old-fashioned enough, I guess, uh, Tom, that I think in a, in a liquidity shock, the Fed is well-positioned to be incredibly aggressive but I'm also thinking about what is the future of the remit of the Fed and the future of the institution. And so I would hesitate to suggest they should be in the business of uh, buying these other assets because the best of the American capitalist system is worth preserving and the Fed has plenty on its plate already. Um, But I suppose that debate will come in what will be stimulus bill four Mm-hmm. But for my judgment, I would not encourage an expansion of the types of those securities. I think the second question I heard, Tom, was about um, international coordination. Yes. Um, you know, I think I'll, I'll put it this way, which is the Fed has done remarkable work in a, in a few weeks' time. 
and every opportunity that a central bank can find to make announcements with the other central banks around the world is an opportunity well worth taking. Um, I, 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 this is not the time for, for criticism. This is the time for support, especially for people like me who think that they are on the right track. But among the most powerful things we did in the last war is often on Sunday nights, we found uh, coalitions of the willing. Uh, if we believed that we were all going to end up at interest rates approximating zero, if we believed that we all had dollar funding problems, if we believed we were all moving to the innovation of that day, quantitative easing, the synergies, the power of working together is immense. And, you know, while I think it would have been better for all central banks to have come into this shop with more conventional unconventional ammunition. They came into it with what they came into it and it'll be another day and another Hoover discussion before we ask ourselves whether they could have come into it with more power. But for now, I'd say if you're going into a, a big gunfight and all you've got are some knives, you need to find your friends with knives as well and go into it all together. I think that, that that's a benefit. I, I'm sure the Fed understands that. And I would hope that as they get forward and they find their way back to weekends, that weekends are another one of those times where time slows down just a little bit and international coordination would be useful for all parties involved, especially when the world is confronted by a very common shock. Yeah. Kevin, let's, let's move over to Congress now. Could you tell us a little bit about the bill that's being negotiated and worked out with the executive branch to address the challenge? Sure. So I'll do my best um, to both steer clear of the politics, which is outside my province, but to be a dutiful reporter. So my sense of what's in this bill, which might end up being around $2 trillion of fiscal support, is it looks to me as though something like a trillion is because we're a, uh, a proud and rich and successful country and we are deeply troubled by the least well-off among us. So there's a lot of cash support between now and year end in the form of checks and other ways to try to mitigate the blow to people that will be fired, to losses that will be taken. So that's an important part of that. I don't think of that, Tom, as demand-centric Keynesian stimulus, and I don't think that's a very helpful way. Um, you know, 1978, economics would say we should fill the shortfall in aggregate demand and if GDP in the second quarter is down 15 or 20 percent some of my brethren would say well we need the fiscal bill to fill in that hole and that's a big hole I don't think of it quite that way I don't think that the job for the for the Congress or the administration today should be to try to offset that hole because in some sense the U.S. government is telling participants in this economy stay home. We're purposely trying to shut down the economy. So it'd be strange to try to goose the economy in one hand and shut it down with the other. So I view that first uh, set of payments, which is a very big number, as really just trying to alleviate some suffering. It's not trying to cure a GDP for shortfall. Mm -hmm. The second half of that trillion I view as um, about a little more than half of that as a liquidity provisioning. So the way I think of that is among the parts of that program, which if it survives, 
um, would be what I think of and wrote about a week, week and a half ago as uh, the attempt to provide liquidity to all comers on Main Street. And it looks like there's about $425 billion of liquidity provision in the bill, at least as I last saw it. And that would be targeted at businesses that are not mom and pops, but are very large and could go through to some of our biggest businesses. And that group of businesses, um, most of them can't access the Fed's commercial paper program they rolled out a couple weeks ago. Commercial paper programs are really for the biggest companies, the most advanced. And so they've already gotten some liquidity support, but this is for every Main Street business that is the core of the economy. And about 425 billion looks to be supporting that. In addition, there's other money that Congress appears to have earmarked for the airlines and uh, to the tune of about 75 billion, another 150 billion or so for other distressed industries and a lot of authority that would go to the treasury secretary to target this money in ways that are, that are ultimately deemed prudent. Kevin, I wanna ask you some questions about the mechanics of this. The uh, 425 billion that's designed to establish a business lending program. I've heard Secretary Mnuchin talk about leveraging that to $4 trillion. Is that, are those things related? And how do you get from 425 billion to 4 trillion? And if, if by way of your explanation, maybe this shows the way in which the physical side coordinates with the monetary side to get what you want. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so first, when we get hit by a shop, we need all of our government coordinated. And as we talked about earlier, all of our government's response to be as coordinated as is feasible with our big trading partners around the world. But let's start with our own government. Again, as we talked about before, the Fed is limited in almost all of its facilities by the statute in ways that I think are should be embraced. Among the changes that Congress made to the Federal Reserve Act after the last crisis is the, Fed, the Congress said, you can use special support from the Treasury, but there can be no bespoke bailouts, no bailouts to an individual institution, but there can be, you can use these programs as long as they're broadly available. I view that change the Federal Reserve Act as a, as a design feature, not a flaw. And given the nature of this shock, that credit needs to be broadly available. So, so I think how do you get from 425 billion to four plus trillion? Let me see if I can describe this and now we're in sort of the wonky world that most of us spend most of our time in. <laughs> the 425 billion, of course, needs to be authorized. Once Congress authorizes the Treasury Secretary, Treasury Secretary has got a host of problems in front of him. He has to then authorize it for a program created by the Federal Reserve. So under the assumption, which I'm, which I'm reading or perhaps over-reading from one of the statements the Fed put out in the last couple of days, where they said they're working on a Main Street credit facility. In my writings a week or two ago, I called it a government-backed credit facility, but it sounds to me substantially similar. That facility needs to be authorized under the Federal Reserve Act under a set of criteria set by Congress. The firms need to have been solvent at least before the shock. The borrowers need to not have access to credit on commercially reasonable terms. The firms need to have good collateral, but I should note that that collateral could be substantially enhanced if some portion of the 425 billion to which the treasury secretary might have access to if Congress acts 
that could be used to wrap or improve that collateral. And lastly, that that, that um, facility needs to be broadly available. So assuming each of those things are satisfied, and I'm confident that if the Fed goes forward, they will be satisfied. Then the Fed has to ask, well, if we provide uh, loans to all comers, and my view is it needs to be to all comers. This is not the time to be picking winners and losers. This is not the time to say, well, what about that industry? There will be time for that after this virus has passed through the US economy. We wanna crowd people in. So what happens? Assuming the Fed goes along, assuming the Treasury goes along and Congress goes along, the 425 billion would be necessary or some portion of that to deal with what we would call expected losses. So the packages of loans that are gathered by the banks will have an expected loss rate in it based on assumptions about where the virus is now. Those losses have a huge error band, we don't really know, but the Fed can't write a ticket for something where the ex expected losses would be larger than the ESF funding. So does that mean that the Fed could only write tickets, provide liquidity until they lose up to, or expect to lose up to 425 billion? No, that 425 billion can be leveraged in the system. And I suspect that my friends at the Federal Reserve and the New York Fed are using some of the knowledge we picked up in the crisis when we created new vehicles, it's called special purpose vehicles, the loans would then be, I suspect, broken into, let's say, investment grade small business loans in the following sectors. They would be packaged in a security, delivered in some sense from each of the small banks to the New York Fed for pricing. And it might be, for example, that the Treasury and the Fed say together that the ESF will support the first 15 cents of every dollar of loss inside that portfolio. So that can run you, that can help, but who would pay for the other losses? You could securitize that structure so the other losses could be picked up by other investors who'd say, sure, if the Congress and the Treasury takes the first loss, I'll take the second, third, or fourth loss. This is financial engineering, but in a good way. And if you wanted to get a lot more leverage out of the exchange stabilization funds, my recollection tells me that's a good way to go, but we have not heard the details of that architecture, but that's my suspicion of how you could get from a $425 billion number to a number that is up to 10X. For conservative planning purposes, given the state of our financial markets, given the uncertainty among many of our investors, I don't know if you would count on leveraging it to that extent, but you could certainly get more bang for the buck than the simple dollars allocated by Congress to the Treasury and from the Treasury to the Fed. Interesting. Fascinating. I want to remind everybody that we're talking with Kevin Warsh, and this is the Hoover virtual uh, briefing. Uh, we're taking questions. Please submit your questions. Uh, and Kevin, I'll turn to one right now from Mike. What is your best case, worst case, and most probable case scenario for our economy and time frame of re recovery due to this pandemic-driven crisis? So, um, so Mike, that's no softball question. And you got from Tom, what Tom said earlier that um, that the wonky discussion we just had, he and I consider fascinating. So now you're hitting me with a with a question that is probably of more consequence and more interest to the broad, broader group of listeners. Um, 
I'm enough of a central banker in my blood that if you don't mind, I'm going to not give you my worst case. This is not a time that even has-beens like me want to introduce those facts and have those characterized or mischaracterized. But I will give you my, I will give you a, a more of a base case or a case that I think might be more a central tendency for policymakers. So the base case, we'll have to assume a couple of things and these assumptions we'd have to take on board. We don't know how honest they are. We'd assume that um, the healthcare directed shutdown of the economy that lasts some weeks and certain geographies, some months works. My sense of having listened to some of the world's experts that if, for example, we all self-quarantine and that's 75 or 80% of us in a geography in a nation, that you need to get at least to that level to contain the migration of the virus. So assume that that works in some sense, but also assume that we decide not to shut down the economy for the balance of the year, that over the course of the next weeks, the healthcare professionals and the economic advisors that are arguing at the highest levels of our government in our biggest agencies come to a common view of how to optimize the economy and the healthcare outcomes, because we're really all solving for the same thing. How do we ensure the economy is as strong as it can over the horizon, which really means ensuring that Americans get back to work and that we're not taking unnecessary risks, uh, especially with the least well-off among us and those that are otherwise infirmed. So with that assumption, which is we go from a hard sudden stop in the economy to a slow reopening, the language I think of is we've slammed on the brakes, and we're gonna release the brake, which is different than saying we're gonna hit the accelerator. So as we release the brake in certain economies, the economy will naturally get back into some kind of rhythm, though nothing like, like what we had before the crisis. And again, you'll excuse me for the other assumption. The other assumption is Congress authorizes the Treasury and the Fed to go forward with these big and deep liquidity facilities for all if the Congress does not do that, especially on the liquidity front, then the liquidity crisis can turn into a solvency crisis very quickly. So with those assumptions, it looks to me as though the economic recession will be deep and it will likely be measured in some quarters. We could be surprised on the upside if, for example, in the middle of the summer, there's an antiviral uh, that comes to pass that will uh, work that will effectively treat people's symptoms and make the virus so it no longer finds its way in the system, then we can surely do better within that. And I would judge as an outsider, not a healthcare expert, that the upside would come either from an antiviral cocktail that is being used to treat other viruses that has efficacy here. The other potential upside from that is a virus that's mutating in a way such that it's becoming less lethal. Now that virus that mutates might become more contagious, but the symptoms might be less pronounced and the mortality might be more significant. So there's certainly upsides, but my broad sense is that we should assume based on those assumptions that the economy that's being shut down around the world reopens, probably reopens in the US a bit quicker than in places like Europe but you still are suffering from several quarters of output that is not growing and that you have a labor market that cannot 
spring back. And just to say maybe one word about the labor markets, most of us that are been following the economy over the last dozen years, we say that we've been averaging payrolls of about 200,000 a month. But of course that number covers up a lot of sins. It's a net number of a couple hundred thousand job gains in a month. In a typical month over the course of this crisis, about 6 million people have been hired and about 5.8 million people have either been fired or laid off. So one way to think about the payroll piece, and this is an overly simplistic assumption, assume no one is hired. So there go 6 million. Mm -hmm. No one voluntarily quits. Again, an unfair assumption. Then the only question is the net number equals the firings number in some broad sense. And with that, you can get to numbers that make the payroll numbers in the crisis really look like, uh, really look somewhat benign in comparison. So I don't want to underestimate what we're choosing to do to the U.S. economy in the near term, but I'm absolutely convinced that over the horizon, which could be a year, 18 months from now, the U.S. economy will be different. There will be scars from this crisis that we can spend a bit of time talking about if you want, Tom, or people listening on the call. But the U.S. is going to come out of this as a relative outperformer relative to our G20 peers. I am very confident of that. What I'm less confident about is an absolute level, can we go back to the kind of growth rates that we've grown accustomed to in the post-war era? And I think there, getting policy right in this period is essential. And we need to, to learn a little bit more over the next few weeks to do it. And again, to go back and not sound like I'm repeating an old tune, the liquidity provision helps us buy time, creates option value, so we can then learn more about the trajectory of the virus, learn more about the efficacy of our tools, and come out of this with the best of American-style capitalism. And so that's why the emphasis here in Strikes Me should be on liquidity. Yeah, let me, I want to ask you about that a little bit later, Kevin. But I, I have a kind of a clarifying question. Uh, uh, Karan asked, makes a claim and makes a question. I wonder if you could shed some light on it. He says, the provisions of the business lending part of the uh, bill in Congress applies only to investment grade companies. The crisis is impacting a lot of non-investment grade companies. Should the Fed's actions benefit these companies as well? Can you, do you know anything about that? I do know something about it, but what I know is only what I've read. So, so this is again, a, a retired has-been. And here again, I think it's an example of where the Fed would serve itself well, and I'm sure they're doing this. The Treasury would serve itself well of turning the massive complexity in these tools into a plain English version and describe what they've done. Um, some of the tools that the Fed has launched in the last uh, 48 hours do limit the Fed's participation in markets such that they would only, for example, buy corporate bonds that are investment grade, that they would only provide security in certain others that are investment grade, but in many other provisions of the liquidity, including what I believe uh, the Fed is calling their Main Street liquidity package, which they have not fully rolled out, but they've hinted at, there wouldn't be such a standard. Again, I think if we were more robust about the regulatory reforms and financial services reforms after the last crisis, we wouldn't be dividing companies based on S&P and Moody's ratings. Yeah. We would have fundamentally reformed our understanding and we would have used market pricing. How are markets pricing securities before the shock 
to tell us what we think markets think the underlying credit worthiness is in the program that I had written about and I hope the Fed endorses, um, that would be not without some S&P Moody's delineation between who's above the line and who's below the line, but simply of solvent companies that have good collateral that could have gotten underwriting before the crisis. I think that's a better, fairer uh, way to provide liquidity to all comers. And if we get in the business here of picking winners and losers, I think we're going to end up with a much worse economic outcome on the back end. Yeah. Kevin, I want to pick your brain on another class of policies. You've talked a lot about liquidity and uh, helping people out get through. What about uh, forbearance strategies or debt moratoriums? Would they complement these, the policies you're talking about here? So, so um, they could, and they can be either destructive or constructive. It depends. The impression I get from policymakers overseas, particularly in Europe and the United Kingdom, is it appears somewhat clear that forbearance as a supervisory and regulatory tool is more in the offing. They have been somewhat more explicit that at least during the period of this shock, that understanding that interest payments might not be due and payable, but would require to be put in arrears until we get to the other side. It's not obvious to me what decisions have been made by the Federal Reserve, the Office of the Control of the Currency, the FDIC, the Treasury Department, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, and a range of other regulators on forbearance. Um, I am I'm less enthused generally at the idea what I would prefer is this overwhelming infusion of new liquidity now. And then once we have a better sense of the duration of the virus, the harm to the US economy, the state of the world, that instead of making those fine-tuned judgments in a, in a very dark weekend, we overwhelm them with liquidity and then concerted judgments are made across regulators. Less obvious to me what decisions have been made in real time in recent days. But again, that's another subject upon which I think our economic leaders will give uh, economic uh, a war program sets of remarks to inform us, again, what their diagnosis is and what they're doing about it. They've now put many of these principles in place and it's, uh, it, it, would, it will serve them well to, 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 to tell their story and answer really good questions like that one. Yeah, Tori has an interesting question, uh, Kevin. It's, are there any policies we could consider or should consider changing during this time to address the growing wealth gap in the U.S. that we were seeing before this pandemic? There's a tendency, it's a great question. There is a tendency in periods of crisis to say we're not gonna let this crisis go to waste. And um, across the political spectrum and in the world of ideas where Tom and I spend our time across the ideological spectrum, say this is our moment to do to corporate governance what we always wanted. This is our moment to do to American style capitalism what we always wanted. Because we're at war, I think this is an opportunity to resist those temptations, however much I might agree or disagree with those initiatives from the left or the right. This is a moment at which we need to respond to the war that is directly in front of us. We need to establish the strongest foundation for economic growth, and we will have plenty of time. 
to then ask ourselves fundamental questions of reform of these important institutions like the Fed and the Treasury, the important institutions like the White House and pandemic responses in generally. And so I don't mean to suggest we should be myopic. And I do mean to suggest that we could have used the period between these crises in a much more fertile and effective way to prepare. But this is, should not be a political moment um, for us to do things that are anything other than essential to come out the other side, in my yeah. judgment. Yeah. Kevin, you, you uh, made the claim that you thought the U.S. Would, would relatively outperform other countries, capitalist countries, uh, as we get through this crisis and onto normal circumstances. Could you, what, what's the basis for your belief? So, so I'd first start with, um, with the momentum going into the crisis. So the U.S. in the, after the detente between the China and the U.S. culminating in the signing ceremony in the East Room presided on by the president, um, from that moment until the crisis was really at our door in the pandemic, the U.S. economy was showing more momentum um, than were most of the other major economies around the world. Some of the other big economies in the world were showing very little momentum, even coming out of the detente between the G2 powers. And so I think on a, on a short-term sense, the U.S. seemed to have more wind at its back than most of our trading partners. So that's encouraging. I also fundamentally do believe um, in the resilience and dynamism of the U.S. economy. Some people might view that as the vice of the economy. I view that as its virtue. And in my business, Tom, and yours, there is a tendency for us to think that, that, that the strength of our economies depend on the brilliance of monetary policymakers, the brilliance of fiscal authorities, and even presidents and prime ministers. But the economics I learned 30 years ago at Stanford as an undergraduate in economics that some of our brethren teach across the campus at Stanford. They teach that the most important thing in any economy is what we used to call the micro foundations of macro. Chad Jones, a brilliant professor, friend of yours and mine who teaches at the business school, describes even to a new generation of students that the micro foundations matter perhaps at least as much as macro policy. And frankly, we've got better micro foundations than most of our trading partners. What are these things? They're things like a rule of law, a culture of capitalism, a permission to fail, and things that we can take for granted. And I think those are huge attributes of the US, and to be honest, they're not a birthright. We could do public policies that destroy these, but they're still alive and well. And if you can say anything really compelling over the last few weeks of war, people on the front lines, whether they're healthcare workers or they're still showing up, but at great companies because they're essential services, they're committed to get their package delivered. They're committed to help the people that are knocking on their door at, at the pharmacy and at the, and at the hospital. And those micro foundations are really important. There, there, there are things that we used to describe as cultural, but they're things that can be squandered and we, we should realize that those give us incredible flexibility on the other side of this. 
Yeah. Scott, uh, I mean, uh, Kevin, Scott has a question. It has to do with the, the reference to scar tissue that you mentioned. Uh, what are going to be the lasting effects uh, from this crisis? And uh, can we spend a few minutes talking, talking about uh, where you expect this to lead and why? One of my one of my critics um, after the last crisis and before this one told me that I had too much scar tissue from the last crisis that I was still overly worried about the next shock because of the shock that I had suffered under with 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 my colleagues like Chairman Bernanke and others. I thought during most of the post crisis period that I didn't that I had a lot of scar tissue, but. Maybe there wasn't enough scar tissue among policymakers in the post-2010 period. So there's a right amount of scarring to have. Maybe I have too much of it. And the new crew, they're getting all the scarring they could have ever asked for in a hurry. Um, what I'd say is it strikes me that the U.S. and global economy is likely to be fundamentally different on the other side of this virus, even if the pandemic has peaked in most of the most of the countries of the world and we find ourselves over the next several months uh, dealing with its consequences but we feel the worst is behind us even in that very optimistic scenario behavior fundamentally has changed and i'll go in two directions but i'll give an analogy to see if it's helpful and here i'll credit another one of our uh, Stanford colleagues who taught me this 25 years ago when I was probably ill-equipped to understand it, but it stayed in my head. Myron Scholes, of course, the Nobel Prize winner who teaches at Stanford, he asked me in a class of students about whether something in a different context would change. Most of us shook our head and were in denial about that. And he used the analogy of an ice cream truck. The ice cream truck comes down the street in the neighborhood the kids on the playground wander from the jungle gym and from the different things and they wander to the ice cream truck. Some crawl, some ride their bikes, some get ice cream, some don't. What happens when the ice cream truck is gone, Myron told a group of students. And the group of students naively said, well, they go back to what they're doing, but they don't. You have fundamentally changed where those kids go. Some go back to the jungle gym, but others wander down the street. Some decide they don't want to have dinner because they had too much ice cream. It's not the perfect analogy because the ice cream truck today is filled with a poison. And that truck has come down all of our streets in the US and in almost every country around the world. And I think we'd be mistaken in the view that we can go back to our old models, our own expectations of consumption and savings, our old expectations of the G2, the US and China, or even the G20. And some of the changes can be very good, some less so. And so if there was ever a shock that we needed to really revisit how our economies and societies are changing. And we missed that. We missed the window to do that after 2008. One of the only good things I could say about this panic, and one can't say anything really too good about the harm and the damage that's being done and the lives will be lost, is this now should be our clarion call to go back to first principles in the economics profession and society at large. I'll just end with one final point, Tom, if you'll let me. Please, yeah. Economics literature, you know, over the last 30 years has gone in some fruitful direction, some less fruitful in my, in my scarred view. 
One fruitful area is we've learned that the strongest countries have separated themselves from the median countries. They've become more productive. We've also learned that some frontier companies have done the same. They've been able to be more productive, take more market share, be more uh, user-friendly, have consumers gravitate towards them. I think in all likelihood, Tom, the winners will be bigger winners, countries and companies that figure out what the new paradigm will be. And the, those that are less able to keep up are gonna have fewer good choices. So I expect more dynamism to the good and to the bad on the other side of it. And it really puts the burden on places like Hoover and people that are in a world of ideas like you and me and our colleagues to think anew and not rely on 1978 Keynesian models or expectations of behavior because the world looks to me, regardless of scenario, that we're going to be in a different place on the other side. And it's our job to make sure that different is better instead of different being worse. Great. Kevin, that brings us to, to the end of our briefing today. I want to thank you for your insightful comments. We really appreciate it. It was great. I also want to remind everybody on the briefing that our next virtual policy briefing will be on Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific time and 2 p.m. Eastern time. Scott Atlas, Hoover Senior Fellow and former Senior Advisor for Healthcare, will discuss the implications of COVID-19 on the global healthcare system. You can join Thursday's briefing at the same link you signed in on today. You can find more research on the coronavirus by Hoover Institution Fellows at hoover.org under the COVID-19 tab. I want to thank you all for joining us today on the briefing. Uh, I want to wish you all the best, stay healthy, and I look forward to seeing you at our next briefing. Goodbye.